welcome to This Sustainable Life Untethered, the place where we explore mind, body and nature and the things that hold us back from enjoying them. I am your host, Alison, and in today's episode, I am delighted to introduce you to the stand-up comedian, Alex Love. I invited Alex to come on the show because I think that comedians have a superpower in that they repeatedly put themselves in situations that most people, myself included, try to avoid. For example, public speaking, putting yourself out there to be judged and criticized, getting it wrong, failing in public, looking silly, and confrontation with other people. Comedians do this all the time, and it's part and parcel of their job. Alex has been blogging about these exact things and sharing his journey as a comedian. So I knew that he would be the perfect guest to help us really dive into these negative emotions and figure out how to lessen their power on us so that they don't hold us back from doing the things that we want to do. Check out Alex's blog at alexlove.co.uk and his Twitter handle is at thisalexlove. Honestly, I laugh loads reading his stuff and I also really enjoyed this conversation in person and I hope you do too. I am super excited to welcome our amazing guest Alex Love today on the podcast. Alex is a stand-up comedian, a freelance writer, and a serial blogger. He has been performing comedy regularly since 2010, and his first solo show, How to Win a Pub Quiz, has sold out a number of times at both the Edinburgh Fringe and New Zealand Fringe Festivals. He has also been blogging about his journey since 2011, and his blog is wonderfully honest and hilarious and Full disclosure, I have unashamedly internet stalked him and read a lot of his blog. Um, so welcome, Alex. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hello, Alison. Thanks for having me on. A pleasure. So can you explain a bit more about your background and what led you to pursue stand-up comedy? Well, I'd always enjoyed being on stage and I um, I did acting at school, but then didn't really do anything with it um I didn't really get involved with drama or anything at university didn't really do anything outside of school and then I kind of missed being on stage and then I thought stand-up comedy was just a a way to I'd always always thought about writing a comedy sketch show I grew up watching things like the far show and um, uh, shooting stars and so things from the 90s uh big train as well uh, so I'd always enjoyed sketches and then when I did GCC drama that was kind of a um, everything would just be a comedy sketch even if it was meant to be serious it would always have a comedy twist and then when I was 15 I had the lead role in uh, a school production of Return to the Forbidden Planet have you ever seen that? No, I no it's, a, it's a space musical because basically I was only one of one of only about three boys who were willing to act in it and I had the lead role by default but <laughs> it, all ca- it all counts and that was great and the school hall seated about 150 200 and playing that for laughs just getting that that doing something and getting that massive laugh just made me really want to pursue that if I could but yeah, didn't really do a lot with it until I was at uni, feeling a bit sorry for myself, thinking, what shall I do? And I'd kind of always wanted to do, I've been writing stand-up comedy for about three years, just stupid jokes and sketch ideas for about three years before I eventually took the plunge. Because my first gig uh, was actually in 2005 at, in Havre Art Centre, but I didn't really focus on it until I moved up to London at the start of 2010. So my first ever gig was... Um, in front of a hundred, about hundred fifteen people. That's quite a lot of people uh, for a first gig. Well, I thought that was normal. I thought every gig would be like that, but it's not. <laughs> I've <laughs> since done gigs in in front of about two or three people, so it's um it's kind of set me up for for uh, raise my expectations un- unrealistically high. But yeah, that was all right, and I was very nervous. I thought it would be similar to 
acting. I thought I'd be saying words on stage, but it's a massive world of difference of you know, everything you, you say has to, you know, get a laugh when you, when you mean it, when, it, when it's meant to. Um, whereas on stage, you're just reading other people's work a lot of the time. So then I was, um, yeah, not really doing it enough because the thing about stand up comedy is you need to be doing it regularly. You need to be doing a good few gigs a week to uh, to get um, in your rhythm, find your rhythm. Um, and if you're not doing it regularly, the gigs don't end up going as well. And if you have a bad gig, the best thing to do is to get immediately back on stage and do another one. But if you're not gigging regularly enough, then it kind of weighs on your mind for longer because you're just not able to exercise your demons. <laughs> and uh, and then I kind of put on hold when I got a job as a reporter for a local newspaper in 2008. And that was just, uh, I wasn't really getting anywhere because I wasn't gigging enough. And working for a local paper just consumed all of my time. And then it was just a really stressful year and a bit. And I ended up, so started 2008, I ended New Year's Eve 2008 uh, in hospital with a broken ankle in Swansea after a pretty ridiculous episode, uh, a very drunken night out. <laughs> I probably shouldn't go into details about <laughs> for legal reasons, but I ended up in hospital. And when I was just like the day after that, uh, maybe New Year's Day, maybe maybe January the 2nd, 2009, I just decided that I needed to quit my job. I needed to move to London and I needed to start thinking more positively, positively about things because up until that time, I was actually had a pretty negative outlook and a, an effect in a hospital bed. I rewired my brain to think more positively and it was, it was strange. Um, are you aware of the hero's journey? No. Joseph, Joseph Campbell. No. It's kind of the, the structure of a myth, like all like Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, uh, Rocky as well. They follow the same narrative template. And there are, um, I wrote my dissertation on this. I wrote my dissertation on Star Wars and I uh, got a first. I still enjoy bragging about that <laughs> <laughs> almost 15 years later. But um, there are points in the journey. And one is called birth, rebirth, where you leave your old life behind and take on a new new existence um and it's kind of lots of metaphors particularly in star wars that you can also sort of things of birth and rebirth and yeah being covered in blood in in swansea that's kind of a rebirth uh <laughs> as i said yeah, it was and on new year's eve out. as well like perfect exactly. timing yeah so that was the moment i decided i just needed to to actually give it a shot and see if i can actually get anywhere with it so you said you rewired your brain in the hospital mm -hmm. bed. Can I ask, mm -hmm. like, what do you mean by that exactly? It wasn't a surgical procedure. <laughs> it was... <laughs> hey, neurologist, come over. <laughs> just uh, get a bit of a screwdriver and stick it around <laughs> in my ear and did some rewiring of my brain. No, it was, it was um, it's a, a psychological thing because negativity is, it becomes a bit of a, bit of a trap once you, you're set in a negative mindset it kind of does affect the way your brain operates so I don't know if it was a conscious thing but I just suddenly started to to think more positively because um I don't know <laughs> just maybe it was the the medication maybe I was maybe it was the painkillers but I just decided I just suddenly started to feel hopeful which seems a bit weird when you're you're in hospital 100 miles from home with a broken ankle and you can't walk for for about eight weeks but yeah I, I'm not entirely sure what happened I just started to feel more optimistic about life and and that was the sort of the catalyst of, of what set me on my way I guess like maybe when you have experienced um such a difficult situation and not saying that you were at rock bottom but certainly to have broken your ankle to been in hospital so far away from home etc would not be um ideal like it's it's easier for things to look more positive going forward. Maybe you're like, well, can it get much worse? I don't know. Yeah, that's true. And I haven't, I've left out some, some key details in that for, for obvious reasons. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, yeah. Basically I don't come out of it very well. Um, is, <laughs> is the, uh, is this short? Yeah. So I, I broke my ankle. That's, uh, <laughs> do, you want, do you want to know more details? If you're willing to share. 
Um, right. <laughs> okay. So I was invited to uh, Swansea uh, by a girl that I was dating briefly at the end of uni. And I drove 100 miles because it had been a really stressful year working for a local paper. And it was, um, uh, yeah, I was living at home with my parents, uh, really stressed, not enjoying life at all. And that was kind of like the, the light at the end of the tunnel, the, you know, I was uh, going to be the start of something hopefully good. And then drove 100 miles and then uh, she answered the door and then went into the, the living room. And uh, the first person I saw in the living room was her boyfriend. So, didn't didn't realize Ooh. that was a thing <laughs> it's not oh. quite what I what I thought it was going to be so then I just got astonishingly drunk and ended as up anyone would yeah mm. <laughs> so it was kind of I was kind of burnt out and a bit run down and that was kind of the thing I thought would be good but it ended up being awful and and then yeah it was kind of was rock bottom and uh it's difficult to get much lower than <laughs> than that so after that you decided to you said you started thinking more positively and you just felt Mm -hmm. more optimistic what what were those next stages that took you more on stage well I needed to quit my job that was the main thing holding me back and I'd actually been carrying my notice around in my bag for (laughs) a large (laughs) a large proportion of my time at the local paper I was not happy with with it so I was just getting shouted at by my editor on a daily basis just about small little things she was and she said she was deliberately going out of her way to give me a hard time so um nice isn't it like yeah exactly what you need is starting a new career and someone says yeah I'm going to give you a really hard time (laughs) okay (laughs) great so then um it kind of reached a point so when I was recovering from my uh with my broken ankle I got a phone call from my mum's cousin who worked at the Guardian and she offered me some uh well at the time it was a job um because someone on her team was leaving and she just needed someone and I was just available had some experience and that's how they do things in the newspaper it's always who you know so it ended up being shifts it didn't end up being a job but it kind of they were meant to the newspaper the local paper were meant to register me on uh, a report a trainee scheme but if I left before I'd finished the scheme, I'd have to pay them for the amount it cost to uh, be put on the scheme. So I somehow managed to cunningly avoid them registering me in the first place, which meant I didn't have anything tying me there. So that was kind of my, I'd already planned my escape very early on in my, my time as a reporter. Um, so then it kind of reached a point, my editor was on holiday and I was going up to London for a week to um, to do some shifts uh, at the Guardian just production editing stuff like that and then my editor said to me right by the time I get back from holiday you have to register on this this course it's gone long enough it's gone on long enough you need to register now so kind of reached a point where I just had to make a decision and the Guardian work was kind of kind of sort of there so I just decided to to take my chances and and quit my job there and there and then and um and yeah, I left left there in June, twenty, um, uh, yeah, two thousand and nine. And then eleven days later, my dad had a brain hemorrhage. So oh, two thousand and nine was a pretty, <laughs> pretty tough year. But it kind of worked out quite well because I, I was able to help out. Uh, I didn't have a job, so I was able to help out at home and um, mm-hmm. help with his recovery and stuff. And then. After that, I ended up doing, in 2009, September 2009, I ended up doing a comedy workshop, like an eight-week comedy workshop uh, by Logan Murray, who's taught various well-known comedians like uh, Rod Gilbert, um, Holly Walsh, uh, We Are Clang, and various others. And he was really good about just encouraging you to, one of his biggest lessons was lose your editor, like that voice in the back of your mind telling you an idea is terrible he says just forget that just just write something um <laughs> and I lost my editor because I, I quit my job as a reporter as well so <laughs> also telling me that what I was doing was awful so <laughs> oh yeah it's like a perfect like metaphor not even a metaphor it's a, a literal a literal metaphor yeah so lose your editor and and just you, if you have an idea don't give up on it before you've actually tried it out because I think that's what you can do sometimes. You, 
you have an idea and you think, oh, this is terrible. I'm never going to try it out. But if you, unless you try it out in front of an audience, you're never going to know if it works. And that's, I often find ideas that I think I've worked really hard on. And I think this is going to be amazing. This is going to be the one, you know, that sets me off to superstardom. Uh, those ideas end up often not going too well, but it's often the stuff that you don't think is very good. And you just try it out because, oh, just I'm up here, may as well say it. And that's often the thing that goes better than something you've slaved over for hours. Just a stupid idea that you've written on a scrap of paper just before you're about to go on stage is often works much better than stuff you've been writing intricately for for weeks before you try it out so that so that was about eight for eight weeks and I met some really good friends on on there as well who we ended up running a monthly club in London and then I eventually moved to London properly at the start of 2010 and then I was yeah just gigging um yeah about three three or four nights a week um sometimes more than that and I was work says on my CV I was at the Guardian for uh two years in reality I was actually getting most of my income regular income from the charity call center so (laughs) (laughs) so yeah did that and then I had to end up getting a full-time job um when the Guardian work started drying up due to cutbacks and um and that's when uh things uh well they were they were fine initially trying to juggle the the full-time job and the comedy but then when I got promoted again by default and I was a manager that's kind of when things stopped being so fun because I was had to manage people and had to worry about them and make sure you know it was their livelihood so I had to look after them as well but Mm. um so yeah then I was in London gigging um and then I moved up to Manchester relocated with the day job in 2016 and I was there for about three and a half years and then moved away um I quit my job at the end of uh July uh 20 all the years are blurring into one 20 no. was it 2019 the one before last <laughs> 2019 <Yeah. laughs> and then um yeah moved away to go traveling basically so and yeah kind of got stuck stuck back home at my mum's <laughs> because of covid because of covid yeah yeah I was, I was actually in new zealand when it all started right oh um, gosh yeah but i was able to get back it didn't really affect my trip yeah so you said that you um were acting at school and like doing mm-hmm. gcse drama have you always felt comfortable just like being in front of a crowd public speaking do you still feel nerves now before you go on stage you know lots of people try to avoid public speaking as much as possible like how how do you turn into those nerves is there anything that you do nerves well the thing about nerves is you shouldn't be afraid of them nerves are somebody said to me once that you're nervous if you care basically so nerves show that you care about doing something i think if you don't feel nervous before doing if you don't feel the nerves before comedy then then something's wrong <laughs> because it is <laughs> um yeah it's just a massive adrenaline rush but i so what i do um before i go on stage is i pace about a lot <laughs> and i have to write my set on first on some paper then on my hand i never very rarely <laughs> look at my hand but it's just kind of a ritual. I just need it there as a safety net. So it means that if I go off on a tangent and start messing around, then I've got something to just get me back on track. But right. is this like bullet a... points or? Yeah, um, just bullet okay. points. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a weird ritual. And yeah, often pacing, jumping up and down, getting the shoulders relaxed, uh, or it looks like I'm going into a boxing ring. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, and it's, you've, you tend to you can beget you can become immune to adrenaline um from being on stage and the more you're doing it the less aware of it you are it's only when you've had some time out away from it that you start to feel it again when it's going through your system Mm. and you mentioned that you um kind of go through the process of like testing out jokes and in your blog you write that in order to get new material roadworthy you have to be mm-hmm. prepared to go through the ordeal of testing it in front of blank stairs yeah and um again like most people like probably don't have to worry about being funny for a living but they might have to give presentations at work 
and having an ordeal occur in a presentation you know where you look like you're not very good or or something embarrassing happens like that's kind of the stuff that nightmares are made of <laughs> so how do you how do you become an ordeal like hunter you're actively kind of choosing them out you're you're seeking them what are your strategies for dealing with ordeals <laughs> <laughs> Another quite been described as that before, but I suppose it's. Uh, I I think you can be too. You can be afraid of failure. I think many, but I don't think you should be because failure is healthy. You can learn a lot more from failure than success. And uh, obviously, you don't want to get too too skillful at failures because. <laughs> but if you can learn from them, yeah, basically failures force you to learn and if something goes badly as i think it's an evolutionary thing you learn more from a negative experience than you do from a positive one because if something's particularly with stand-up if something's going as you'd written it if something does well then all you've really learned that that exactly what you knew already you, you haven't really learned anything because you knew it was going to be good because because of course because i've written it so of course it's going to be good but um <laughs> it's um when something goes badly um sometimes I think it can be very tempting just to completely abandon the idea but if you believe it's funny you have to kind of keep chipping away at it and maybe um, presenting it in a slightly different way maybe what you were doing wasn't quite the best way of of delivering it Um, you have to look at it more closely once it goes badly so it's um yeah it's fine to fail but as long as you you learn from failures then that's that's really the most important thing do you have a process for this chipping away or from learning because um you know like what's your method after something negative has happened like how do you come to the next bit where you think okay well I'm going to try this next time you start going well you often what you should do uh, is record every gig and then listen to it back. Cause I, I, I got through, I went through a phase of being really good at recording gigs, but really bad at listening to it back. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Cause even sometimes, sometimes just listening to it back. And even if it doesn't go well, you'll think of something. So you'll, you'll connect one thing to another you'll think of a, another way of doing it differently that you may not have done before if you hadn't listened to it back. And sometimes if you think it's a bad gig <clears throat> and you listen to it back, you realise maybe it's not so bad. It's always worse in your head than it, well, not always worse in your head, but sometimes. <laughs> and what about those times where you've said something and it's just completely fallen flat? Like, how, how does it feel do you feel like that cringe moment or do you just kind of think no I'm a professional this is it this is part of it like this is my failure I learn from this for next time or do you still have that feeling inside where you want to go ah? <laughs> yeah you want to do that you definitely want to do that but it's um you have to just carry on and um and it's not I'm not going to pretend it's nice, but if you can, if you can, <laughs> there was one particular gig in London, quite a legendary gig called Pear Shaped. <clears throat> have you have you heard of Pear Shaped? Not heard of anything that you mentioned. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was kind of a joke. I didn't really expect you to, because it's kind of a an in joke for comedians. Okay. Um, Pear Shaped is run by two two phenomenally talented and lovely people, um, Brian Damage and Crystal, and they they're such great comedians it doesn't run anymore they've talked spoken about bringing it back but it was it marketed itself uh, its tagline was london's second worst comedy club <laughs> and it, it was not uncommon to, to do a gig at pear shaped and every act would just die <laughs> there'd be no audience every or the everyone there would just be other performers all just staring at their notes or just awkwardly at the, the floor and if you can enjoy dying on stage if you can enjoy doing badly especially in an environment of a pear shape where doing badly is often encouraged then I think you're going to be all right um but at the same time it's all about balance so you can't just 
think that dying all the time is is a good thing you um but you need to be able to deal with it when it does happen so obviously you need to be doing well <laughs> you need to have a good gigs you can't just be doing awful gigs all the time um because at some point you just got to think hang on this isn't quite working out i need to to do something different yeah but i kind of i like that idea actually of enjoying doing badly like rather than just want to turn away from it or escape but just embrace it because it is it's such a strong emotion isn't it whenever you feel that embarrassment or cringe or whatever yeah. if you just decided to be like oh well I'm just going to enjoy the intensity of this emotion and feel yes. my cheeks flush and there we go like <laughs> but then if you can enjoy it then there's a good chance that the audience may start enjoying it if you because it will force you to just do something differently you can't just carry on well, you can just carry on doing your material, but if you start to play around, then sometimes you can end up getting yourself out of trouble and you can end up getting laughs um, just because you've been forced to to do something different. Mm, mm, that creativity. Um, mm. So on top of the ordeals, whether you enjoy them or not, um, you've also written about dealing with idiots at your gigs. Oh, I thought and... you were going to say bowel movements. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> Our movements do, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, maybe we can come to that later. <laughs> um, but you might talk about like people who either intentionally or unintentionally are rude or disruptive throughout your performance. And, um, you know, again, I think that most people in their daily life don't have that level of confrontation in their interactions with their friends, family, and you don't come across as a confrontational person at all. Like, how, how do you deal with those situations? Do you have any, have you learned anything that would be helpful to share? So we're, we're talking hecklers hmm. or just general hecklers or particularly hecklers who want to cause trouble. Oh, I didn't know there were categories. I know. Oh yeah, there are blog, different. You said yeah, like there, there were... were people who would talk and not really realize it or there yes. were people who would be deliberately like knobheads. Yes, um, technical term. Deliberate, <laughs> not bad. But but most hecklers, they don't mean to be nasty. They just say the first thing that comes into their head after a few drinks. They just blurt something out, and uh, you always have to remain in control. You can never lose your temper with uh, with a heckler because then you've lost. You've probably lost if you get angry with them. You kind of need to to remain in control and. Uh, and try and have some fun with it and realise that you, you have the power, you've got the microphone. Um, and uh, and you're also, I, I, so I don't drink before I go on stage. So that also gives you an edge. You've got all this adrenaline. They've had several pints and you, you, sh- you should be um, more started, um, together than they are. So you should have an advantage. You've got the microphone and you should also have a clearer head. And you're a comedian, so you should be able to think of funny things. So I with hecklers, I always try and just have some fun with it, just try and enjoy it. And it's um I've some people do say I, I give hecklers a bit too much time. Uh but you know, I just enjoy playing around with them because it's because it's fun and it's something different. It's it's very rarely the same heckler twice. All right, so you appreciate the the novelty maybe and the challenge. Yeah, but sometimes, I mean, you have to earn the right to completely shut them down. You can't just tell them to shut up and you know call them all sorts of names straight away. You kind of have to show the audience that you're playing around with them and you're in control and then it reaches a point and you, and just, you just have to say, no, that's enough um, and shut them down. But um, no, you just have to have some fun with it and but show that the audience that you haven't lost your, your temper because then that, that often just turns them against you. And has anybody, after you've said, you know, that's enough and you've tried to shut them down, has anybody continued to persist? Yes, but then you have to get the audience on. And the audience almost always are on your side. So you can just get them to join in chanting at them um, and shouting at them. So that's power. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then in the pub quiz show uh being able to deduct points from people is a massive um bonus when you're controlling hecklers because you can just deduct points and they hate it (laughs) right right they want to win they want to win but you're deducting points for every heckle so and that's and that's also a lot of fun 
especially when the audience get involved and start chanting to, to take points off. Yeah. So I was going to ask if, um, you know, being more assertive on stage has helped you like be more assertive in other areas of your life off stage. But the things that you've said, they don't quite apply in real life. It's not like when you're in an argument with someone, you can get everyone else around you to be like, oh, just <laughs> tell them it's wrong. <laughs> yeah, you could give it a go, but <laughs> it doesn't quite work the same. But I think it it has doing stand-up comedy certainly made me a more confident person and it has uh um yeah it certainly changed me for for the better uh, i think just made me more more confident and um and knowing i can do things and instead of just being held back by by that lack of confidence that i did i did suffer from at university I guess maybe now you have that belief in yourself where you've been in so many situations and handled so many things, like you say, different every time. You kind of trust that um, mm-hmm. I'm going to figure it out. It'll be all right. Yep. On top of the um, ordeals of public speaking and, um, you know, putting jokes out there to be tested and uh, deliberate knobheads in the crowd, mm-hmm. um, you mentioned that you did... Uh, quite a lot of gigs you know at some point um sometimes three or four times a week and I know in your blog you said that you set yourself doing a target of around 150 a year which is a lot of gigs particularly if you have to like travel to them stay in accommodation um sometimes really crappy accommodation and like sometimes on little sleep how how do you stay so resilient when it's so physically demanding because basically there's no other way you either <laughs> you either give up and go home or you keep going so um yeah there's a there, there are two options you you either let it get to you and you quit which um uh yeah th- those thoughts have been in my mind but you just kind of have to keep believing it's going to get better and often it does so when you say those thoughts have been in your mind can you elaborate like have you ever been close to just saying that's it I've I've had enough yeah so in when I moved to Manchester I wasn't really doing enough gigs um compared with London partly because with a full-time job uh you have to drive around a lot more in Manchester than you would in in London in London you can just hop on the tube so uh I, I kind of had a rule about doing gigs that I couldn't do gigs that were less than um one more than two two hours away drive because after work um, i mean that's uh if you're there for about an hour and a bit and you're driving for two hours either way that's five sometimes six hours on the end of a working day so wow. I, I couldn't really do too many of those long distance gigs every week so uh it was um yeah because otherwise i'd just be exhausted and wouldn't be able to do my, my day job that that actually pays more regularly so uh so that was as often when i've when i've wanted to quit is just when i've not been doing enough and if if you don't do enough gigs and the gigs you do aren't very good then that kind of weighs on your mind a bit because as i said uh you need to once you do a gig and it goes badly you need to get back on stage and do another one as quickly as possible but if there the gaps are, are getting larger between them then it's that's when there's thoughts of where you start questioning what you're doing with your life. <laughs> but then it's all, often before Edinburgh Fringe that, that I've thought about quitting and then Edinburgh Fringe happens and it goes amazingly well and I think, all right, well, maybe I'll stick with it. But it comes back to just not doing enough. Just putting in those um, hours and the practice. And mm-hmm. is it that the Edinburgh Fringe, is it that the, I, I can't imagine it, like the, it's so intoxicating to be on stage and to have people enjoy you, enjoy your material, enjoy your creativity, that that's enough of a pull just to keep you going. Yeah, well, it helps making some decent money for the month as well. And it helps performing in front of audiences that actually appreciate what you do instead of just stare blankly. Um, so, yeah, that's that's been the one thing that's kind of kept me going sticking with comedy with Edinburgh Fringe but then yeah in the last couple of years I've also it's also allowed me to travel around the world going to New Zealand and Australia and being able to cover the cost of the travel for with comedy gigs that's not a bad way to live 
Yeah, it's amazing. It's the mm-hmm. dream come true, really, isn't it? Like basically getting to fly there for free and just do what you love and explore a new a new country, a new place. Um, so one of the things that I really appreciate you being vulnerable about in your blog, um, and you know, we kind of touched on this a little bit here, is mm-hmm. your no holds barred view of yourself as a comedian and your journey. And you've written a few times about failure and I guess like your perception or you might have felt that you failed after certain gigs or with regards to um critics reviews and um you know you mentioned about your own feelings of like not doing enough so you talk about Mm -hmm. like complacency and stagnation in your blog Mm -hmm. and then well I just wanted to say firstly like the courage that it takes to 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 write that and dissolve your ego is is brilliant so thank you for sharing um and well, thanks for reading. I'm not sure if many other people do. <laughs> <laughs> I've read so much. But like, why why do you share these personal things about yourself? You know, your your evaluation of yourself, your hopes, your dreams, how it's going. What, what do you hope to get as a result of sharing? Because we can write, like I write things in my diary, um, my private diary, but posting it in public for other people to see is completely different. Yeah, well, this may surprise you. I do hold things back. So um, I, I don't put everything in my blog. Uh, it's it's kind of just, it's a therapy. And so I feel better when I write stuff. And it just, yeah, especially when, when it's about particularly difficult experience, it just makes you, it just makes me feel better. Um, but it also helps that very few people actually read it. So <laughs> I'm sure that's not true. <laughs> what what if more people did read it? What if all of a sudden, you know, blog became really, really popular with thousands of hits a day? Do you think you would still be so honest? So I think so, because that's just the way I, I write. That's just the way I enjoy uh writing. Cause I I really because there is a bit of spin to an extent but not the um i try and avoid like too many details about specific places because it's there's a kind of the vagueness does provide some protection for for myself and and people involved with it if i've done a gig that hasn't gone very well i often won't say where it is because then everyone will know where that is but um it's uh if it yeah if it was to become successful i mean i i like failures but i'm you know success well i can deal with that as well <laughs> and you say that you hold things back from your blog but i've got to say you don't hold back like deals with your bowels and mm. <laughs> Why do you share them? Is it just, I mean, I appreciate reading about it. I think it really humanizes uh, someone when you hear that they've not had enough toilet paper nearby or they're on the toilet like two minutes before they need to go on stage. I'm like, I've yeah. been there. <laughs> yeah. It's um maybe some people find it reassuring. To be honest, I don't exactly know I'm <laughs> why. Because it is a big part of my life and it has particularly in Edinburgh 2018 I mean that was a horrific just a horrific experience I don't know what was the matter with me I was on the verge of checking myself into hospital <laughs> some it was awful <laughs> but it does make you feel better talking about it as well and, and writing about it and it's um it just helps get get you through and it's um yeah if, if anyone is reading it and they feel slightly better about a, an awkward situation they've been in then you know that's that's a good thing yeah um, I guess I feel like I I don't know that I need to share but just that I absolutely know where you're coming from like sometimes before particularly like job interviews or presentations even though I feel I've prepared I've done everything even though like mentally I feel like I'm confident I'm fine I can handle this my body is just mm-hmm. like no evacuate this is awful yeah. get out this is no and um, I have absolutely been in those places where you just can't wait to get off wherever you are. Or like, I've been in one situation where <laughs> I 
I was waiting to be called into the interview room for my job interview. And I was just there like, do I say I need to go to the toilet now? What happens if I don't go? Can I go in time? The interview is literally going to start in two minutes. And it's just, yeah, bodies. So fun. <laughs> yeah. So what happened there then? Did, was it, were you able to, um, were you able to, 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 to go or... <laughs> I didn't. I just trusted oh. that I wouldn't go in the chair there. And the... <laughs> <laughs> that's very brave. <laughs> no, but I actually find like um, like breathing is it really does help me slowing down my yeah. breath. Not even yes. deep breathing, but just really slowing down. Like it's a very physiological thing for me that even though mentally I'm not feeling stressed, my body is feeling stressed. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't have trusted my balance to to. Uh... <laughs> to behave themselves in that situation um i i wanted to cover because you've mentioned a few kind of philosophies and i love your uh, the, the so many sound bites that i feel that we've got from this podcast already and i just wanted to mention a few ones that um you've written about in your blog that i really like mm-hmm. so you've said um with regards to failure either you get bitter or you can keep trying to get better it's just one vowel's difference and, um, you know, it's cheesy as hell, but I love cheese. And I think that's that's really nice. And then you've written something else as well, which is um, it's better to die on your ass and learn from it rather than coast along in a bubble of mediocrity. And I'm wondering, I'm curious, like what drives this desire for constant improvement and for pushing yourself to be out of this bubble of mediocrity to be better? Because... Otherwise, what are you going to do? Um, if you if you don't get better, then then you're never going to get where you want to be. So, so that's kind of what drives me on. Um, that because that was because I, I was coasting along on just material that I knew worked for too long, and then I, I just think I got a bit bored with it, just doing the same thing over and over again. And after a while, you'd do become a bit detached from it and and if you're bored with it then you won't deliver it properly then the audience will be bored with it so that kind of um that's i think as i recall that specific a bubble of mediocrity gig was when i was performing at the comedy store in manchester and i was doing an extended set it was on a sunday night so it's not like the the big weekends but they still get a good crowd there and it's still the, the comedy store in manchester and it just wasn't very good. It was just a bit flat and you just want it to be better. So, um, yeah, you need to always look for ways you can do things better because um, I don't think you should ever be content because that just makes you complacent. Yeah, I, I agree. I feel like um, there's a, a Japanese word called Kaizen, which is like this constant never-ending improvement and I feel like like that's what I try and live by as well just because it's more fun I think too mm-hmm. like you you do get bored and you're like um looking for novelty looking for um to see what you can do in your one and only life basically like a curiosity for me yeah and it's also I apply that same concept to cooking as well <laughs> because even if i've because i'm a, i'm really i make a really good chili con carne but okay. i'm always i mean it is really good <laughs> <laughs> but i'm always thinking uh, every time it has to be slightly different i never do the same recipe twice i always oh. have to do something slightly different just to um because doing the same thing over and over again just get, it does get boring so you have to keep things fresh and interesting I'm curious about your chili con carne recipe now and also how much you can change things in order for them to be different every time. Like surely you only have a, a narrow parameter of ingredients by which you can uh, mess around with unless you add in like completely crazy things. No, well, the, the, yeah, there's not a massive amount of manoeuvre for the chili con carne, yeah. but you, you kind of, so I add chocolate, uh, yeah. uh, dark chocolate and lime as well. And then sometimes I'll... Um, like chop the carrots really finely. Sometimes I'll just uh, add other things as well. I mean, it's sounding more boring the more I'm explaining it, but <laughs> it's, it's, it's um, yeah, just doing things slightly differently and, and seeing how, how it works, just experimenting. Do you blog about your chili con carnies in another platform? I don't, but I could always do that. 
Please do. I would definitely <laughs> follow it. Are there any other life mottos or philosophies that you live by and would like to share? Um, hmm. I think you've probably got the uh, yeah the, the the gold the golden one is don't get bitter, get better. I think that's that's a real important one, and and just try and do what you enjoy as well. And have some fun because yeah, if twenty twenty has taught us anything, it's that we take so much for granted. And and when once we are eventually out of lockdown, there's so much more living that we need to do. Um, just if you're miserable, try and do something about it. Definitely. And how has you know the previous year been for you with regards to coronavirus lockdown? You you've gone from doing however many gigs a week and making people laugh and trying to better yourself, you know, in, in that way that you like and you know how, and all of that's been taken away from you. Like, how have you, how have you been coping? It's been all right. So I'm back home at my mum's and um, I've got a dog here called Martha and she's, um, she's actually sleeping at my feet. She, um, in my in my room she she follows me around everywhere and so uh since march so i got back from new zealand on the 20 i think it was the 24th of march it was the day after the country went lockdown somehow managed to get back indiana jones style and rolled <laughs> underneath the door and um, <laughs> uh so, so, so since then i've, I've yeah I've, I've been going for so I'm from a town called Stroud in the southwest, so it's the countryside, and I'm surrounded by hills and uh, woods and meadows and things. So I've been going for dog walks. I've been going about three three miles every day with my dog since March. So that's really good for mental health. Just mm-hmm. getting out and seeing the countryside and getting plenty of exercise. But yeah, the um, the other creative outlet, um, which I sent you a. A sample of was uh, the <laughs> the project I've been working on to keep me busy creatively. Um, Ross Kemp the musical, so that's um, that's been good to to have some sort of creative outlet. That looked really fun. Yeah, you sent me. Um, is it you singing and your friend uh, doing the music? Is that what you said? Just singing about like Ross Kemp, who's a no, hot it's, man. Uh, it's my mate doing it. A- yeah <laughs> it's that that's a demo so that's not that's not ready that's going to be released on single eventually but um <laughs> it's um so the track you heard um all the music or the singing and the instruments were all played by my friend Rich Shilto who's a very accomplished musician and very talented um and the plan is for me to play Ross Kemp in the actual production and so I will shave all my hair off and, <gasps> oh. and be singing yeah so oh, yeah. um yeah so that's the that's the plan um we were hoping to do it at number fringe this year but i'm not entirely sure if it's going to go ahead but we've we've made some good progress but it's nice to have a creative outlet yeah and sorry i just said oh because beforehand we were talking about how you've been growing your hair and haven't had it cut since march so yes. it must be you know a, a nice kind of getting ready to perform and get back into it again like a really nice like symbol metaphorical shedding shedding the hair to play ross yes so it comes back to birth and rebirth again i suppose doesn't it birth the and rebirth. Yeah, yeah i like it mm-hmm. <laughs> and i will be also resembling a, a baby a newborn baby with the uh the shaven head so yeah <laughs> I feel like I'm getting to newborn baby with the chub from lockdown nibbles because it's so dangerous being in your house close to the fridge all the time. It's horrendous. <laughs> well, I've I've been eating what I want, really, because I'm able to walk three miles every day with my dog. So that's a really good. Uh, yeah, it's quite a good to have that. Just not having to worry about putting on weight because I'm just walking it off every day. Yeah, I think I need to do six hours walking in order to eat all the foods that I want to eat. Mm. <laughs> um, so in the second part of the podcast, yep. we kind of talk a bit more and take a bit more of an environmental sustainability focus. Um, 
so Alex what does the environment mean to you is it something that you care about is it something that you are active about um yeah it is I mean I give uh three not bragging or anything I'll give three pounds a month to the WWF to save an acre of rainforest <laughs> that's brilliant yeah and <laughs> no it's something I've always um yeah as I said in the email I'm a, I'm a bit of a hippie at heart so I do love the environment and I love nature and especially growing up around the countryside you, you do um appreciate it all the more so yeah it's, it is a, um something I am genuinely uh passionate about so um yeah I'm always trying to make sure I've do the recycling and uh turn off lights and uh other little things that do end up making some sort of difference but yeah there's also the more you think about it the the more just uh such a massive challenge it is because it's um all the plastic in the oceans and melting Mm -hmm. the ice caps it does get a bit overwhelming the more you think about it so you just gotta concentrate on what you can do to make things better yeah and and what is it about you know your relationship with the environment that has motivated you to act so you know to give money to wwf or to do the recycling like what is it why do you care about it uh because it's gonna disappear if unless it's protected it's gonna just get worse unless something's done about it um unless drastic action is taken that all these these amazing animals i mean so many animals could just become extinct i mean it's already happening and uh as as the animals i feel sorry for really more than anything else Mm. so is that the kind of thing that motivates you thinking about animals losing their their habitat their wildlife yeah i think so and you mentioned that you are a vegetarian as well is that because you um because of this kind of uh love of animals uh yeah it is and what put me off meat was so there are two things one was the horse meat scandal and i was editing some news stories about all the the things that um they uh all the processes and i was reading about it the way they kill animals for meat as well and it's i think it's the thing uh the more you think about it the worse it actually seems um <clears throat> so if i hadn't have given it any thought i may have continued to eat meat but the other thing is that um when i was best man for uh one of my best friends at his wedding um the he uh, had the reception on a farm and i had stayed over a few of us had camped so I'd, I'd slept in my car with people had tents and <laughs> and um I had to wait the next day for my friend and his wife to appear to clean stuff up. So I went to the farm shop to get some breakfast and I got a sausage roll and I was walking back to my car and these little piglets came running up to the fence because they saw me with some food to say, what have you got? What have you got? Mm. And I, I looked at the sausage roll and I thought, um, probably one of your relatives actually. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that made me think more about it. And uh, so, yeah, I've stopped stop buying meat and it stops me eating it but I do have I do have relapses when I'm in Scotland and I'm drunk mm. so did you eat that sausage roll when you yeah started? I did <laughs> yeah <laughs> still ate it <laughs> I mean I didn't I continued to buy meat for the next few years yeah well I think it's it's um it takes a while doesn't it I think for you mm. to kind of I don't know if it's build up the courage or just get going with something that you think about and you feel deeply about like it can be quite scary or anxiety provoking sometimes and it takes a bit of for me as as well to to kind of take the plunge and go for it so thinking about um what you've said and and what matters to you with regards to animals and their habitats uh i invite you at your option entirely to come up with something that you can do to to act on that thing that you care about with the environment and it doesn't have to be the biggest thing it's not the thing that you think you should do but it's the thing that feels kind of meaningful for you perhaps so you don't have to um fix all the world's problems by yourself overnight 
um, it can be big, it can be small, it can be temporary, it can be long lasting, um, but it's got to be something new that you're not currently doing and something where it has like a, an effect. So you can say, you know, I've done this and I can I can measure this um, and something where you've done it yourself rather than tell other people what to do or, or give more money, for example, because um, we kind of learn from our own experience and, and learn from doing. So is there anything that kind of springs to mind that you can think about? Well, when we were talking uh, before the uh, start of recording, uh, I just wrote down um, use my phone less because that is, especially during lockdown, I do just, um, I mean, that's not going to make a massive difference really apart from charging. But if I if I set myself some hours when I don't use it, that would then help me do other things to just stop getting so consumed with with what's on my screen. So I don't know if that's, I mean, it's not going to obviously save the world, but it will uh, save me from wasting so much time. Um, but I, yeah, I don't really know. It's, it's tough. So I was, I was hoping you'd be able to come up with something like a, an eco challenge. But also it's it's difficult at the moment to to make changes in a way that you'd be able to, if if things were as normal, so you, you can't really say you, you take more public transport um, because yeah. you're not really getting it at all at the minute. So um yeah, I'm open to suggestions, but use my phone for like two hours. Like if I could say two hours a day when I'm just not using it at all, turn it off, then I think that would make a big difference to my own uh, procrastination levels. And uh, I think it's that that kind of discipline, isn't it, of of just saying, right, this is a cutoff point. I'm not going to use it between these hours. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know. That's that. That's not not the best. <laughs> no, I I love that idea. I love that idea. And actually, I do remember reading somewhere. I have to. I can't. I can't quote it now. But it was something around the um, the CO two of using your phone. Like there is a direct kind of environmental. The the more you use it, so yeah. No, that that's a perfect um thing that would be a great challenge to try. So would you? Do you, do you use your phone when you go out dog walking? Nope. Ah, okay. So you already don't do that. So you're already like fully enjoying nature there. Yes. So it yeah. would be. Okay. But it's just checking it every yeah. every uh, few minutes. Oh, I wonder if I've got a message now. And because <laughs> a lot of the time I haven't got any messages, so I don't even know why I'm checking it. Um, <laughs> so, but it's just there. It's like an omnipresent distraction. So if if I could say between these hours, I won't uh check my phone for messages um or avoid going on the internet on my phone between this number of hours these uh, these times then i think that that's doable and it would actually have quite a big benefit on me personally of of just um stopping me getting distracted and it and it does it does also restrict creativity just yes. time spent on the phones yeah absolutely i am um, i have a complete uh, love hate relationship with my phone and I watched that um, documentary on Netflix as well the social dilemma and uh, before I knew I was procrastinating and not using my time effectively and then I watched it and then I was like oh my gosh and it has like a extra kind of evil effect like these companies are profiting from us losing our attention and not being able to do and fulfill that the things that we want to do and they're benefiting from it and that you still find yourself pulled back to your phone like like you say just checking it like for, for no reason at all there's nothing going on um okay so if we are to define it into a mm -hmm. bit of a, a goal you say yep. like um if we make it smart <laughs> is yep. there something that you can say so turn it off between a certain number of hours or just for x number of hours a day what's what's the specific kind of thing that feels doable for you um well i'm just thinking about when i uh, i'm already thinking of a way out of it <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so i've been doing freelance journalism and i suppose I'll, i may need my phone for for that so unless i'm uh doing 
using it for work i suppose that that's kind of i can get out of it that way but i suppose it's just it's switching off the mobile data on my phone because that that will solve a lot of problems because mm-hmm. i accidentally turned that off once and i thought i'd um there was something i thought i thought the internet was down for o2 um mm-hmm. uh but i just switched off my mobile data uh, but <laughs> And then when I was writing shows, I used to just turn my phone off and turn the internet off just so I could focus on it. So, um, yeah, I'm acutely aware of just how much of a distraction it is. But if I can set myself some rules of when when I'm using it, I think that would make a big difference. But, yeah, um, certainly over lunchtime, that, that's doable between the hours of one and two. So it could even be from from the, from the when I go on my dog walk to uh, after lunch, two, two or three hours. Okay. So turn off your mobile data um, from the moment you get back from your dog walk to after lunch. Um, or when I, uh, so if I turn it off at, so let's say 10 a.m. Okay. Turn off the mobile data at 10 a.m. Because um, I will be able to check my emails on on my c- computer. So that's, that. you know, that means I won't be missing anything. Yeah. Um, it, that may be important. Yeah. Such as invitations to be on podcasts of course (laughs) (laughs) so i could turn off the mobile data at 10 a.m and then turn it back on about 3 p.m so that'd be five hours without mobile data and that sounds amazing and how long do you think you can do it for like a week a month what what feels because that's the thing once i start something i can stick to it but often the the most difficult thing is actually starting it yes in the first place um but yeah from 10 a.m to uh 3 p.m i i reckon i could i could i reckon i could last a month a month okay yeah yeah that's amazing so do you think then that we could catch up in about a month's time yeah to find out how it's gone and and what's happened yeah definitely yeah cool oh this is super exciting oh god you're making you're making me look at myself now with your um with the challenge and also being a vegetarian and also even just kind of uh blogging about myself and my own journey I think there's um there's quite a lot that I'm gonna have to think about and uh yeah, you'll probably see if you if you subscribe to the podcast, you'll be like, well, I've started this challenge too now because Alex has inspired me, blah, 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 blah. Well, it, I'm, don't blame me if it all goes wrong. I just want to say, if, it, <laughs> if, if, if you start writing too, too much detail about bowel movements and uh, toiletry <laughs> habits, then I'm, I'm not going to be responsible for that. Well, I think I will take your advice and learn from the failure if it does go wrong, because learn from the failure and enjoy it. There you go. (laughs) And uh, yeah, it's been wonderful having you on the podcast and learning about um, learning about how you do such difficult things that us mere mortals, I think, would really crumble at with regards to, you know, public speaking um repeated failures ordeals and deliberate dickheads so it's been really really fascinating alex thank you so well, thank much you for thanks podcast. for having me on but yeah as i said as i said in in that initial email um there may actually be something generally wrong with me so i, I don't know that <laughs> <laughs> i don't think so <laughs> or if it is embrace it because it's working so I've basically decided that I'm going to pivot my whole podcast and interview only comedians from now on because I had so much fun with Alex. I loved his playfulness and experimentalness and this idea of testing something out, trying it, reviewing it, tweaking it and testing it again, whether that's jokes or chili con carne. I also loved the simplicity of some of his answers. You know, I asked him, how do you stay so resilient? And he said, you know, you just kind of have to. And sometimes I think that we, well, I overthink things when actually the answer is pretty simple. And perhaps my thinking and overthinking and exploring is just procrastinating and making an excuse. 
I also love this idea of enjoying failing. What if it is something that we just fully embraced it for what it is, another part of the human experience, and rather than trying to avoid it or minimize it or get through it as quickly as possible? I mean, I could go on and on with my kind of key insights and takeaways, but I think what I'll do is come back to some of these topics through some solo episodes later on. Um, I just wanted to say that I, I found the article I was talking about with regards to carbon use and mobile phones. And it turns out there is a whole movement around digital sobriety as a method to reducing our carbon footprint. Um, which is super interesting. And I will definitely be exploring this in another episode. Um, I've put the link to the article in the show notes though. So check it out for a very interesting read. Um, My favorite quote from the article is uh, with regards to worldwide internet traffic. Okay. So pornography accounts for a third of video streaming traffic And this generates as much carbon dioxide as the country of Belgium does in a year. Wow, that's that's huge. That is my mind is blown. Um, Yeah. So, yeah, I'm definitely going (laughs) to I'll try and find a guest. Actually, I think that would be really interesting to interview them about digital sobriety. Um, Oh, and for my non-UK listeners who don't know who Russ Kemp is, he is an actor and how do I describe him? He's a proper, bold, hard man. Like, he talks like this. He was really famous on a soap we had, uh, EastEnders in the UK, if you heard of EastEnders. Um, so yeah, I think the Ross Kemp, the musical is going to be hilarious. <laughs> um, lastly, inspired by Alex and in the spirit of continuous improvement, after the episode, I reflected to him some things that I thought I could have done better as a host and invited him to share his reflections about me as well. Um, and I invite you, dear listener, to do the same. So come on over to my Facebook page, TSL Untethered, this Sustainable Life Untethered, or I'm on Instagram at alison.untethered. And yeah, share your thoughts. How could I be better? How can I learn from my mistakes better for the future? And or just come and say hello. I'd love to hear from you and your thoughts about the the show and the episode. Please subscribe to the podcast, leave a review if you like it, and do not forget to go over to alexlove.co.uk to get more of his blog and follow him on Twitter at thisalexlove for his funny musings. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time. (laughs) 